Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. We are uh, continuing in our series in the book of Acts today, and uh, we are going to find ourselves in chapter 21 here in just a little bit, if you want to go ahead and flip over there now. Um, man, you know, I don't, I don't know if you guys follow uh, Reach Life on social media. If you don't, you should. Um, but I posted on there this week a quote uh, from a professor, and it's actually one of my professors. Uh, I'll let that uh, cat out of the bag. And we were in a class uh, called Homiletics. It's a class on how to, how to preach, and I should have probably stayed in there a little longer. But... Uh, but, but my professor said something that, uh, he said this. He said, the will of God is a very small and slippery spot. You will not find it very often, and you will not stay there for very long. Have you ever felt that way? Now, he was telling this as, I mean, that, that shook me uh, back then. I have certainly felt that way. And, you know, as I've had conversations with other, other followers of Jesus, I see that that's, that's kind of a common feeling. Like we all want to know and follow the will of God for our lives, and that's a great thing to, to want to do. But we often end up feeling like, man, the will of God is a very small and slippery spot, and I don't find it very often, and when I do, I don't stay on it for very long. Um, you guys may not have been in that class with me, but it seems that a lot of you have, have felt that way. I think that's, that's a really, um, I have great respect for that professor, but I think that's an inadequate view of the will of God and will of no, uh, view of knowing the will of God and finding and doing the will of God. And I think it's, that, that's only one side of the confusion about the will of God. On one side, uh, another part of confusion, somebody might say, well, you know, what's going to happen is going to happen anyway. Uh, free will is an illusion, and so let's not worry about it. Uh, on another side, somebody might say, um, you know, I see this thing as God's will for my life, but if they were to flip open the Bible, they'd see that's clearly not God's will for, for their life. Um, and finally, we, we may struggle to find ourselves um, unable to find the will of God for our lives, but other people sure think they know God's will for our lives, don't they? I mean, they're not really eager to share it with you too, right? Like, my name is Terry, and I have a wonderful plan for your life. Um, it seems like, I, I, and it's an eager thing, and we all, we all face that. Now, thankfully, we don't have to fall into any of those errors today because as we like to remind ourselves as a church, God wrote a book. We're going to be in that book today, Acts chapter 21, and we're going to be uh, looking at the first part of Acts 21, just verses 1 through 16. We have the Apostle Paul ministering to in uh, several churches, but in particular, churches in a couple of places, and he's dealing with this issue about finding the will of God and doing the will of God. Let's pick up in Acts 21, verse 1. And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. 
And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. All this weed language, by the way, this is, uh, this is Luke. Uh, he's, he's journeying with Paul and, and we, Luke, the author of Acts, uh, verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus and an early disciple with whom we should lodge. We'll stop there for today. So in our text... We have Paul. He's been traveling by sea, like a great little sea narrative there at the beginning. I thought if you like stories, um, traveling to different cities, sharing the good news about Jesus. And here we see something that appears to be a message from God to Paul that Paul seems to disobey. <laughs> um, and so he's on his way to Tyre. He stops in two cities. He goes to Tyre and Caesarea and people beg him not to go to Jerusalem. And again, Luke the author of Acts, uh, one of Paul's traveling buddies, very specifically says that these people were speaking to Paul via the Holy Spirit. Well, now, wait a minute. If those of you who are following along in our journey through the book of Acts, you may remember just, just Paul's words from last week in the message. Flip back a, a chapter in your Bible, Acts chapter 20. Let's look at verses 22 to 23. Take a look at this. This is Paul. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem. What does it say next? Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Well, okay, now hang on. <laughs> so here's Paul saying he's gotten a message from the Holy Spirit. Now remember, the Holy Spirit is, you got Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are the one God. The third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is constraining him. That word is, is most often used in the New Testament uh, in a way that means to be bound by chains. Okay? I'm constrained by God, bound in chains, so to speak. Remember, you may remember back in Acts chapter 16 where Paul says he was forbidden by the Spirit for going into Asia to preach the gospel. And now, in a very similar way, he's saying, in the opposite, I'm being compelled by the Spirit to go into Jerusalem. And again, Luke is saying, in the very next chapter, the Holy Spirit, these people are saying, by the Holy Spirit, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. 
Uh, this prophet Agabus comes down from Caesarea, takes Paul's belt off like an Old Testament prophet would with a visual illustration, right? Binds his hands and feet. This is what's going to happen to you, Paul. Don't go to Jerusalem. If you go, here's what's going to go down. Um, so what gives? Who's right? Who is really hearing from the Spirit of God? Should Paul go to Jerusalem or should Paul not go to Jerusalem? What is God's will for Paul's life? Is the Holy Spirit sending mixed messages? This may feel very familiar to you in your life. God, one minute I feel like you want me to do one thing, and next minute I feel like you want me to do the next thing. And this, I'm getting counsel from this person about this thing, but my best friend says this thing over here, and I'm, I'm reading this other thing in your Bible. I want to know your will, God. What am I supposed to do? Anybody ever feel that way? For, for sure. For sure. Um, so let's look at what's, go, what's going on here. Um, and then make some application to our own lives, because I think it'll be really helpful. You guys with me? Okay, let, let, let's do it. Uh, you know, James and I were talking through this passage this week, man, and uh, we read, I, I read, I don't know how many commentaries, and uh, James and I were talking about it, and we were like, well, but it says over here, but, but over here, you know, we, we were trying to make sense of this thing, and um, I, was, I was pretty confused about it, but as I studied it more, I, I think I've come to see it more clearly, and I'm going to walk through you with what, what my thinking is, and you guys can can decide for yourselves if, if you agree. There's several ways to look at it. I'll tell you how I look at it. So the, I think the first thing we need to keep in mind, you guys, everybody have a weekly? There's a place for you to take notes on the back there. Uh, this might be a, 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 good, a good day practically to, to take notes. Not all my sermons are. James's sermons are always a great place to take notes. Uh, but this would be, might be a good place today. Uh, I think the first thing we need to remember is what Paul teaches us in his first letter to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 14, 33. See it coming up on the screen. Very familiar verse to many of you. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So if you're a note taker, that's point number one. God is not the author of confusion. He's not the author of confusion. This means that right away, we can cross out the idea that the Spirit of God is sending mixed messages. That's not what he does, right? He is not the author of confusion. God is never wrong. God is never confused. God never sends mixed messages. Now, we may perceive contradictory messages, right? But that doesn't mean that God is communicating or giving contradictory messages. So if we hear two things that we believe are from God and they are contradictory, then we have to be humble and say, well, I'm either hearing that incorrectly or the person's giving it incorrectly. But I know, I know God is consistent with himself, right? God, God's not an author of confusion. Um, so if it's, if it's indeed from God and it seems confusing or uh, not confusing, lots of things are confusing. But if it seems to be contradictory, then we know it's a problem in our receiving, not in God's giving, right? Okay. So that's the first thing. I think also we forget something else. Point number two, we are limited in our understanding. And everybody said amen, <laughs> right? We are limited in our understanding. You know, so even if we do indeed feel like God has given us a word to say to someone else, or even if God has given us a word about ourselves and our lives, we must receive those things and give those things with an incredible amount of humility. Because ultimately, we are not God. 
right? Even, even if we think, man, I, I think this is what God would have me say to this person, you have to do so in such a way that although God speaks perfectly, I don't always hear perfectly, so I'm going to submit this with, with a, a really heavy dose of humility, right? And we would receive them in that way as well. Why would we do that? Because we are limited in our understanding. And until that changes, we should always approach such things like this with a huge amount of humility. Here again from Paul in 1 Corinthians, this time chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. Paul says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Was it saying verse 9? For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror how? Dimly. But then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So the first key to knowing God's will for us is to remember that man, God is not the author of confusion. We, we are limited in our understanding. So there are other uh, valid interpretations of this passage that I'm going to walk through and tell you what I think about it. So just know that. Uh, but I, again, I'm going to tell you what I think is going on. And I think it'll make some strong application to our lives as well. So let's put this uh, piece of the pu- these puzzle pieces together. Go back to Acts 21, 1 to 16, if you, if you turned away. I'm just going to run through it briefly. Remember the disciples in Tyre in verse 4, speaking through the Spirit, they're telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Clearly these people have gotten a word from the Lord, and they pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then down in uh, 10 to 12, this guy Agabus comes down, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is what's going to happen to you, Paul, when you go to Jerusalem. Clearly, Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts, even in hindsight says these people were speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, in fact, we will see, as detailed in the rest of the book of Acts, this, was a, this detailed prophecy comes true. Paul, Paul does go, and Paul gets bound. Um, he's given into the hands of the Romans, the Gentiles. But again, back in Acts 20, Paul said, I'm actually constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So let's put these things together. Uh, what, what's going on? I believe Paul was indeed being led by the Holy Spirit of God to go to Jerusalem. And I believe that the Spirit of God had told him that in each city, like he said back in chapter 20, I'm going to, everywhere I go, they tell me I'm going to be thrown in jail. I'm going to be afflicted. Uh, That's what's going to happen when I get to Jerusalem. This was the same message, notice, that was now, Paul was now getting from the people in Tyre, wasn't it? And it's Caesarea. God is not the author of confusion. This is actually the same message. I believe that, God, uh, Paul was hearing from God. I believe that these people were hearing from God, but they knew in part. And so they prophesied in part. They saw terrible things by the Spirit of God that were awaiting Paul, should Paul go to Jerusalem. And they loved Paul. And they cared for Paul. They honored Paul. And so they could have taken this revelation as a sign from God. 
we don't want this to happen to our beloved Paul. Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem. And so Paul says, wait, what, you're, you're, breaking, you're breaking my heart. I, I love you guys too. But Paul had heard from the Lord. So God is not the author of, the, of confusion. We are limited in our understanding. Even when we hear from God, it doesn't make us God, right? We're, we're, we're still limited in our understanding. So we've got to be really humble in those matters. And I think that's what we see in verse 14 of our passage. Luke says, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. In other words, we know that God has revealed to us terrible things are going to happen to the Apostle Paul should he go to Jerusalem. And we trust that Paul has gotten clear direction from the Lord that he is indeed supposed to go to Jerusalem. We love Paul, but let the will of the Lord be done, right? I think that's what's going on here. Now, why, why would God tell Paul these terrible things ahead of time? I believe that Paul is being blessed by God with the privilege of being able to count the cost of obedience. God is saying, Paul, I want you to go to Jerusalem. But guess what? There's going to be a heavy, heavy, heavy cost of obedience. This is similar to Jesus in the garden, is it not? Who knew fully well what was to come. This is why he was born into the world, right? He was born so that he could live a perfect life and die on our behalf. Paul here is imitating Jesus, where Jesus says, In the garden, in anguish, Father, if there be any other way, but not my will, your will be done. So we see here with Paul. Paul is following the submissive heart demonstrated by the Savior. He considers it an honor to be considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus and for Jesus' sake. Uh, you may be reminded of, first, or of uh, Philippians 1, 29, where Paul's under arrest and he's writing to the Philippians. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So we shouldn't think that we're being taught to look for suffering. I want to suffer as much as I can, and that shows how spiritual I am. That's a martyr's complex, right? That's, that's, not, that's not godly. Uh, but if we are humbly, and clearly following God's uh, orders for our lives. And we suffer because we are following the gospel and God's commands for our lives. Then we should, we should consider it an honor to suffer in the name of Jesus and for Jesus' sake. Paul is following, choosing to follow Jesus' mission of the gospel regardless of the cost to him personally. And again, he understands the compassion from these people, and he appreciates it. You guys are breaking my heart. You're pleading with me, not to, weeping with me not to go. And I love you guys too, but I have to go. Thus says the Lord. And so let's put feet on this and kind of bring it uh, down to the ground uh, for us. Again, we've been taught, at least I was taught, maybe you have it, you've caught it somehow, that God's will is a very small, slippery spot that you won't find it very often and you won't stay there for very long. But we have to stop and ask, 
whether that's an accurate view of the will of God. And great news, I don't think it is. I don't, I don't think it is. I would like to suggest a more excellent way, a more biblical way, a, a more sound way. Um, I think we've mistakenly, I think what leads to that confusion, we have mistakenly uh, adopted or embraced a mystical view of finding the will of God where we think that the, the way to find the will of God is that I have a certain feeling stirred in my soul or I see certain signs um, around me. I'm not saying that God doesn't give feelings or that God doesn't give signs, but I'm saying that we have uh, mistakenly thought that those are the primary ways that God communicates his will to us. Um, you, you may have caught on if we are led by our feelings um, and signs, those things can be really subjective and we can sometimes read our own meaning into those, into those things. I want to share with you what's called the wisdom model for uh, decision-making. So in his sovereignty, God doesn't make our decisions for us. God has dignified us with the responsibility of making significant choices for ourselves, right? Significant choices. So it's like a good father who teaches a child uh, how to make wise decisions. Um, it's like if you, if, if, as, a, as a dad, you may give your child, here's a, a piece of paper. Here are some markers, water-soluble markers. And uh, here, uh, and, and I want, I want you to, to, to draw a picture for me, right? And the father delights in what the kids will, will, will draw. Just don't go off the paper, right? Use only these markers, uh, that, that sort of thing. And the father delights in what the kid draws. And the kid wants to please the father, right? The, the father's not a tyrant. You only draw what I tell you to draw, and you only use these colors and these orders. And the kid's not afraid. The kid doesn't say, but... I only you, you need to tell me exactly what to draw all the time and only which colors to use. I won't do anything else, and I'm going to sit right here until you tell me specifically. That's not, that's not a father-child relationship. That's not, that's not love. God is a loving father. So let, let's walk through this. Um, I think it'll be a model that's taught. We can't go through it all today. Uh, and this might make some of you, uh, if, you're more, if you're used to trying to rely on feelings or signs, this, this, this may be uncomfortable uh, for you, but I'm telling you, it's freeing, and it's biblical, and it's godly, and I think it leads to really good decisions. Um, so using the guidelines of God's word, we're going to combine with wisdom, and then we can have the freedom to do what we want with God's blessing. Can you imagine? Here are those three pieces I just said. Using the guidelines of God's word, combined with wisdom, then we have the freedom to do what we want with God's blessing. And notice the order that those things came in. God's moral will, wisdom, and our personal wants and desires. God's moral will. This is the first component of making godly decisions. What does God say in his word? Remember, God wrote a book. Right, So what does he say in his word? And the goal here is to find out, is something uh, encouraged or prohibited in Scripture? Is it commanded or is it prohibited in Scripture? One way or the other. And the goal here is 100% obedience. There is zero wiggle room. When we find something clearly uh, commanded in Scripture or clearly forbidden in Scripture, we must obey. 
because God is God and, and we are not. Um, and so we learn God's moral will through reading Scripture, through meditating on Scripture, through being taught the Word of God by sound biblical teachers. Let's go to the next. This, this is very practical stuff. The next thing is wisdom. We apply wisdom to the options that remain that aren't forbidden by God, right? Uh, or if it's something that is commanded by God, then we, we just we know that and we obey. Um, so if God doesn't forbid something, we apply wisdom to it. And this will help narrow things down quite a bit. Some, God may not forbid something, but it still wouldn't be wise to do. Right? You ever been there? <laughs> right? uh, so we want to we uh, work in wisdom. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. There's lots of passages in the Bible of, about wisdom, but of course, Proverbs gives us some of the best. Listen to Proverbs 8, 35 and 36, where he personifies wisdom and has wisdom speaking for itself. He says, he who finds me, wisdom, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me, wisdom, injures himself and all who hate me love death. Where do we get wisdom? Well, the Bible says you can pray for it, right? Ask God for wisdom. We also get wisdom from other people who have walked the road ahead of us, learned a few things, been down a few paths that hopefully we won't, we can save ourselves some pain and learn from them. Vicarious learning is the best way in that sense. Um, let, let somebody else suffer that you, you learn. Um, we can receive instruction. We can do our own research. We can learn from wisdom from our own experiences. Hopefully, you're a little wiser now than you were a few years ago. That's how life is kind of supposed to work. You've learned a few things from the school of hard knocks even. We can get wisdom. So we want to combine God's moral will. If it's not forbidden in God's moral will, well, if, it, if it's commanded, well, decision's made. Do it, right? If it's not forbidden, okay, let's apply some wisdom. What's wise to that? And then thirdly, we can per factor in our personal wants and desires. Our personal wants and desires are valid. Do you guys understand that? If, if they're not sinful, they're valid. They're good. They can be really healthy. Like the father who has a child draw a picture, he delights in what the child, like, man, you really like, like drawing bunny rabbits. That's awesome. Look at all the flowers. You love flowers, don't you? Or like with me, I love drawing like army men and soldiers growing up and and my mom was like, that's awesome. You keep drawing that. That's cool, man. Not sinful. She delights in it. And the Father delights in our non-sinful wants and desires. And he uh, delights in giving us the desires of our heart when it comes to those things. And so, again, we don't uh, have time to dig into it, but but the Bible is full of commands to do what is right in your own conscience. Even when it comes down to like giving in a church, this is the way we approach giving. It says that each should give as they have decided in their own hearts, right? And God delights. That's why you can be a cheerful giver, right? Because it's, it's something that is in your heart. You love it. You desire to do so. Um, and a lot of times we, we, we practice it in reverse. We find what we want to do and then find out if, is it okay in the scripture? And that's fine, right? If that's, if that's the uh, result, but the end result is what matters is that, is it morally sound? Is it within God's moral law? Is it wise? And is it in keeping with my heartbeat? Is it what I love? Uh, an important question to answer. What if my personal circle doesn't overlap with the other two? 
<laughs> you know, right? What if my wants and desires are against God's moral will and or wisdom? Well, if you're faced with a moral obligation, obedience is the only choice. <laughs> obedience is the only choice. Uh, be faithful uh, to your promises, that sort of thing. We've got to do what is right over what we like in, the, in those instances. Uh, if there is no moral obligation, um, you can choose to do nothing, right? Like, uh, for example, if you're a single person, you're like, well, man, I, what's God's will for my life? Am I supposed to get married? I, I don't know. I don't know. Is it morally wrong for you to not get married? Nope. Not according to Scripture. Is it morally wrong for you to get married? Nope. Not according to Scripture, right? Uh, thank God for me. Um, I wouldn't have done very well as, as a single man. Uh, so praise God for Kelly. But there are times where you're not obligated to do anything. So we, but if, there, if, our moral, if our personal factors don't line up with God's will and it's not wise, don't do that. That's an easy, that's an easy decision. So where does God's sovereignty fit in here? We talk about God is sovereign as a church all the time. God, in his sovereignty, again, doesn't make our decisions for us, but God's sovereignty should affect our attitudes when he sovereignly acts. Hear that. Recognizing God's sovereignty should, rec should affect our attitudes so that when God does sovereignly act in a way that we have zero control over, how do, how do our hearts respond? Well, we trust God. We can trust God with our circumstances. We can trust God with the results because he is in sovereign control. He's altogether good, and he is trustworthy. He's our perfectly good heavenly father who promises to work all things for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Man, this should give us a, a tremendous sense of freedom. You know, I... I'm not going to thwart God's plan somehow by making decisions, you know. He's God, man. I, I'm not. Uh, it should give us rest. It should give us an attitude of, like, humble surrender. I'll leave the result. I'll do what I think is God's uh, fulfilling God's moral will. I'll do what I think is wise. I'll do what I think will be enjoyable to me, and I'll leave the results up to God. I'll, I'll leave the circumstances up to God because my hope is not in my circumstances anyway. My hope is in the God of my circumstances. So, again, that's what we see in our passage today. Let God's will be done. And if, it says, if, if God wills, we will do such and such, the Scripture tells us in James. And if it doesn't work out, all good. My, my peace isn't in my circumstances anyway. And I hope this is maybe helping us see that discerning the will of God does not require a sixth sense. It really doesn't. Or you're a super spiritual person that God's will is only available to the spiritual elite. It is not. It's available to all of his children. So um, spiritual maturity is growing in our understanding of God's word, the Bible. It's growing in wisdom. And it's growing in submission to the revealed will of God and his sovereign plan ultimately. Man, I, I hope that that gives you... A, a real sense of peace, not a piece of sense, a sense of peace that we've been taught that, well, if I feel peaceful about it, it's God's will. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily taught in Scripture. And again, that can be really subjective. But I mean the sense of peace that, man, if I'm making 
my decisions based on what I find to be the moral will of God in his word, the Bible. And I'm following wise counsel. And I'm learning from experience. And I'm following the joys that he's put in my heart. I can trust that God is sovereign. And I can live my life, you guys, free because God is sovereign. You are free because God is sovereign. He is your loving, heavenly Father if you're in Christ Jesus. And he delights to see what you're going to do. He, he knows what you're going to do. But he delights to see you do it. He delights to see it. So there's, there's an exception uh, though, that I want to say. There are times when God does give specific assignments for you. We, we see that in our passage, don't we, with, with Paul. Paul, you're going to Jerusalem, dude. Paul's like, okay, <laughs> you know, I will. So when we see that, when we undeniably have direction from God that is confirmed by his word, then we obey. And that sometimes may go against wisdom. We see that in our scripture too, right? They're like, Paul, if you go in this place, you're going to be thrown in prison, dude. Paul's like, I know. I know. God's already told me that. I know. But I'm ready to do it because I know it's from the Lord. So you better know. It's from the Lord. So here's a sentence for you. In absence of a clear, definitive, special command of God, make the wisest, most expedient choice that is in keeping with his moral will. You, want to, you may want to take a picture of that with your cell phone, man. And when you're coming to a place like, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, right here. In the absence of a clear, definitive, and objective Notice that that's words in there on purpose. <laughs> Special command from God, make the wisest, most expedient choice that is in keeping with his moral will. If you'd like to dig into this topic more, I'm going to recommend a study for you by a guy named Greg Kokel. You may remember, some of you may remember him from our tactics study. Um, he did a study called Decision Making and the Will of God. Um, and he unpacks like some of the uh, more mystical uh, incorrect ways of seeking God's will. He works through Bible passages about that. He works through Bible passages to, to go over what we went through today. Um, but J.I. Packer uh, sums up what should be the result of this really well. He says, the basic fault here is disregard of a principle that is writ large in Scripture, too large perhaps for some to see. The principle is that the right course is always to choose the wisest means to the noblest end. Namely, the advancing of God's kingdom and glory. Moral law delimits the area within which the choice must be made. God-given wisdom then leads us within these limits to the best option. God enables us to discern this by prayerfully using our minds, thinking how scripture applies, comparing alternatives, weighing advice, taking account of our heart's desire, estimating our capabilities, some call this common sense. The Bible calls it wisdom. It is one of God's most precious gifts. Uh, Georgiana, can you go back to that slide that had all the full Venn diagram up there, please? Yeah. Georgiana, boom, right, right on it. James said, amen. Yeah. So, so take, a picture, take a picture of that with your phone too, man. See that white right there in the middle where all those colors come together? do anything you want in there do anything you want now look things are narrowed down quite a bit right but if you're operating under god's moral will you're operating in wisdom 
you're following the godly desires in your heart, do anything you want. The will of God is not a small, slippery spot. It is a field where God says, I have made this field. Don't leave it. But dance in that field. There's great freedom for us, guys. I want you to get that this morning. But I want to close with um, something that I, uh, I, I... I thought about saying this or not saying it, but um, we fall. Anybody ever notice that we fall into meme theology sometimes? Meme theology. Pull this meme up for me, uh, there, Georgiana. I call it Hillary Swank theology. Is what Hillary Swank is a, is an actress. They don't, they don't have it. Okay, thank you. That's my fault, not theirs. I'm quite certain. But this is the idea that you know. I really wouldn't change anything in my life or in my past because my past has made me what I am today, and I'm so thankful for the things in my life. Now, that sounds great, doesn't it? But here's the problem with that. Some things in your past were not just mistakes. You know, like, oh, I, I bought the wrong um, spot remover, and I, but I ended up buying this great new shirt because of that, so I wouldn't change that in the world, for the world. No, no, some of our mistakes... We're sins. We were outside of God's moral will. So when we say, you know, I wouldn't change anything about my past because it's made me who I am, then we're ignoring the reality of sins that we've committed and sins that other has, others have committed against us. Um, you may be very grateful for who you are today because, again, God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He can do that. He's sovereign enough to do that. But think about it for a minute. Without those sins, you could be better than you were today. You could have hurt people less. You could have sinned against God less. Right? So saying that denies the reality of sin. It actually assumes that your sin was the best thing for you. And that, by default, puts your sin on God. It blames your sin on God because that must have been what he desired for you to do. All along, it was not. No, 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 a thousand times no. We can never say that God wanted you to sin or me to sin. He's not the author of that either, right? Um, he does not desire for us to sin, uh, let alone determine us to sin. So when we sin, we don't do so under God's power. We do it under our power. Um, so that's the first thing that to do with our sin. If, if we find ourselves making those kinds of mistakes, acknowledge it. Confess it to God, right? He knows it. He knows your sin already. But when you confess it, it demonstrates the posture of your heart about your sin. You're agreeing with God about your sin. And we should also embrace the forgiveness that God offers. Listen, when we make mistakes, when we make decisions outside of the moral will of God, there is grace for us. It is not cheap grace either. It is costly grace. It is serious grace. God doesn't just sweep our sin under the, cop the carpet. No, God the Father stares directly at the garish ugliness of our sin. As horrible as it is. And so does God the Son, Jesus. And he chooses to take it upon himself anyway. Real costly, permanent, 
Forgiveness is available because real, costly, and permanent payment was made for our sin. Jesus offers a life exchange, doesn't he? Your sinful life for his perfect life. And so listen, if you haven't made um, yourself aware, because trust me, God is knocking at your door, or you wouldn't be hearing this message. If you have not made yourself aware that God offers you grace for your sin, if you're looking, so you know what, maybe I can just make better decisions going forward, but what are you going to do with this stack of, on your ledger in the past? And you're going to sin going forward too. So am I. What, are we gonna, what if you walked into a courtroom? Judge, I know I'm guilty, but I'm never going to do it again. Right, because you're going to be in prison, right? Uh, you will not do it again. Uh, we got to do something with our sin, with our mistakes. Um, what do we do? We take them to Jesus. The only place that can be done about, that, that, the only person that can do anything about our sin. In just a minute, uh, we're going to observe what we call the Lord's Supper. And it is a, a physical representation of a very physical and spiritual truth that because of our sins we can call them bad decisions we can call them mistakes but ultimately sin is truly missing the mark it is missing the moral will of god you've done it i've done it you will do it i will do it the solution is jesus again i I said he offers a life exchange he offers his holy life for our sinful life and this bread and this juice is the symbol of that Jesus gave his life on a cross, taking the penalty for our sin. Again, it's missing the mark. The mark against what? God's moral will. Right? God is the author of life. What happens when you reject God? You get death. Not only physical death, but spiritual death forever, separation from God. Jesus says, no, you don't have to do that. I've paid the price. It's represented by this bread. It's represented by this juice. And if you're a follower of Jesus, here in just a minute, we're going to offer you to remember Jesus. Spend some time in prayer. If there's something that you need to confess between you and God, God, I I, I know this is going on, but I'm going to call it what it is. I'm going to call it sin. I'm going to turn from it by your grace, and I'm going to embrace your forgiveness, which is also by your grace. And I'm going to walk forward in that forgiveness. And I'm going to do so by your grace. You know what, Jesus? Take my life. You deserve my life. It's in better hands with you anyway. You are Lord. Thank you for saving me. Maybe that today's your day for that. If that's you, man, we would love to talk with you more. If you want to uh, talk more about decision-making and the will of God, let's do that. If this is a time for you to thank God for pulling you out of where you've been, Jesus is your Savior, man, then praise him. Remember Jesus. Remember who he is and who you are in him. Okay, let's pray.